So car gas, gas for your car is very expensive right now. Super expensive. So we're going to take a ride with Wayne Gerties. He coined the term hypermiling. That just basically means getting more miles per gallon than your car is supposed to. Right. His car is a Honda Accord. It's not a hybrid. And that's rated at 23 miles per gallon. And over the lifetime of this vehicle, using his advanced techniques, he is averaging 48 miles per gallon. All right. So we're going to get in the car with uh, Wayne. You'll know we're there with him when we start speaking in hushed tones. Can you tell me what you're doing here? Well, anytime I have somebody over, you always got to do a quick check of their... All right, so Wayne uh, immediately, just before even really introducing himself, pulls out his electric meter and checks Blythe's tires. That's because the first step uh, to getting good gas mileage is making sure your tires are inflated properly. Yeah, Wayne actually uh, inflates his tires on his car well over the recommended uh, PSI, but uh, you shouldn't do that. Don't do that. Let's say you're coming in and I'm going to park in the garage. Would it be best to back into your garage and pull out forward, or would it be best to pull in and back out in the next day? I'm going to ask both of you that question, yes or no. Back in is what I would say. And? Well, I saw you back in when you got home, so I'm going to also say back in. Okay, <laughs> and here's the reason why. The car's warmed up, the engine's warmed up, it's at maximum fuel efficiency. I'm going to back into the garage, and there's some reasons for that. Think about a cold engine is burning, just at idle, is burning almost twice as much fuel as a warm engine just at idle well if you have to back out and watch what you're doing and you know slowly back out you're just burning gas to turn the car around a lot of gas well why not do it when it's warm when you're burning less fuel that's brilliant right he says if you front out you're spending less time in your car when it's at its least efficient so in the morning we're gonna get in the car it's all cold start of starting it so we're now we're neutral and we're just rolling backwards out of the garage. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he uh, has just popped it in neutral. He has not started the engine, and we are beginning to roll down the driveway. And it's actually a pretty good slope, so we're building up some speed here. Now, because you're all in the car, usually I can make this work where I wouldn't have to do this. I can actually just turn it, but... Wait, he, so he has got, he's gotten out of the car. He's pushing it beside the car. It's just not back in. Okay. Now I'm going to go all the way to Hunt Club Road, which is about three blocks. Okay, so we still haven't turned the engine on. We're still just in neutral. Nope. This is weird because usually uh, when we do these things, there's some kind of sound to demonstrate that something's happening. But the silence is actually demonstrating the fact that still we are now, what, uh, two blocks away? Right. Still moving, and Wayne has yet to start the engine of his car. I also feel nervous because it seems like we're kind of out of control. It is scary, yeah. Now, do you do this every time you drive? Um, if if it, the opportunity is available to you, why wouldn't you? Now, some people think, well, you're driving with, you know, the engine's off. You don't have brakes. Well, I'm going to show you we're going to have brakes. We are headed for a busy intersection, so I do hope we have brakes. Yeah. Okay, well, here we go. Yeah. Yeah, okay. We did. We, we made brakes. it. We survived. No. Okay, Wayne has finally started the car, um, and we are headed uh, towards a, a stoplight. 
Okay, so I'm smart braking now. I'm actually slowing down before I get to that light. And this guy behind me is going, oh, what is he doing? What is he doing? Do I want to race up that light? Do I win any race? Do I win a trophy for going through the light? No, he's actually my rabbit. Rabbits are good because they trip that light for me. It's already in the cycle to do its thing. Okay. So when you say rabbit, this is a car in front of you that is pulling up to the intersection. The weight of that car has triggered it to turn green. Actually, most of uh, the sensors now are magnetic. They're not weight-based, but yeah, that's what he did is he tripped the light. So we're driving along and we're going up and down hills. And in some of these, he actually turns the key and turns the engine off. Yeah, so we just coast down the hill. Uh, all the elect- electric stuff on the car is still on, but the engine is off. And he does. He says, don't do this at home. This is not for beginners. These are advanced techniques. Yeah. Now, this is a long light, so we're going to shut down here. Okay. So we've, the car is now turned off. We're rolling down our windows to get yeah, some air in here. It's a little warm in here. I mean, it's, what, if it is 53 degrees. Yeah. It's a comfortable day. Sun's out. It's beautiful. So- Listen around you. Stick the mic outside and listen to what you hear. All these engines around us are just idling away. Yeah. You know, and they're all burning between a quarter and a, and a half gallon per hour. All of these cars around us, we've probably got, <laughs> what, 40 cars from that side to this side. You know, that's just wasted. What am I doing? I'm sitting here. I, I would okay. have thought I would have thought that we would, by turning off the engine and then starting the engine again, that that would use a lot of gas. It's about six seconds in a modern-day fuel-injected engine. Six seconds worth of fuel. So if you can stop for 30 or 40 seconds, by all means, shut down. The, the whole idea here is uh, you're using gas when you hit the gas pedal. And then if you use the brake, you're then, in some cases, kind of wasting the gas you've just used. Right. So he tries to get the most out of every uh, push of the gas pedal, riding that push as far as he can without touching the brakes. All right, we're coming, we're coming to an exit here, and uh, it's one of those clover leaves that takes you all the way back around up onto another road. Um, and uh, Wayne is taking it pretty hard. Yeah, here again, point. the principle of not using the brake and maximizing your uh, forward momentum, yeah. uh, it feels more reckless than uh, safe. Yeah, we're making it kind of a hard right, and uh, intern Kate is, um, physics is the only thing that could make us sit this close together. Riding this exit so what? Yeah, what was that? We just sped through uh, no speed. forty. No, no, speed. no speeding. Okay, we didn't speed, but we went real hard through that uh, exit yeah, cloverleaf there. What I to do is get to the top of this ramp without having to use the engine. And if these trucks and cars weren't here, we could have actually made it. See, we stopped our engine back down over there. Somewhere. But it's fun too as a passenger because that's that's exciting. That's, that's you don't know what's going to happen. So again, we are at an intersection. Uh, Wayne has turned off. The, the engine right and it's eerily quiet it's almost unsettling and then you might have the same experience if you've ever been in a prius yeah yeah so we're actually gonna leave this piece right now um and talk about some of the things that automakers are doing to make electric cars sound more like normal cars right, for example uh, domino's in the netherlands did this they have scooters where they go out and they deliver their pizzas yeah. uh, they're electric so they needed some extra sounds Sounds like this. So that's pretty unconvincing, really. It's kind of cool, though. Um, the new Audi is making this uh, sports car, electric sports car, called the R8 e-tron. And they actually have created um, a sound for, for when the car is accelerating. 
Now that sound is for the benefit of pedestrians and other drivers, so they hear something as the car approaches. Right, but that's that's not all. Rudolf Halbmeier designed the sounds for the Audi. I think I can make a car a lot more attractive by giving it the right sound. Yeah. And giving a super sports car like the Audi R8 e-tron no sound at all. Well, it's interesting driving a car having almost no sound at all, but it doesn't fit that car. When I when I try to make a car as attractive as possible, then it has to have a sound that's fitting. And in this case, we have a big uh, opportunity to do something completely new, to create new sounds. So how long did it take you then to develop the sound? Well, in this case, it took a little longer. I think we started maybe two and a half or three years ago. But... Uh, the problem with that was that we had to develop, an, I call it sometimes, an instrument or some kind of um, little car computer that's able to create this sound how we wanted it. Yeah. So, so what you're saying, Rudolf, is that it's not just that you had made these recordings that you know play when you push a button in the car. Actually, mm-hmm. the gas pedal becomes sort of an instrument where... Um, you know, the more you're pressing it, the more sort of accelerating sound you're getting. And so it's, it's not just recorded sounds. This is a whole new instrument. Well, if I just tried to uh, reproduce one recorded track, it would, it would sound just awful. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, this, even combustion car sounds are a very complex thing. So did you take... So where do these sounds come from? Is it you in front of a microphone going... Or are you using other tools? Well, in the first place, I started looking everywhere for everything. I just, um, I didn't really look for sound as sound material. I tried to start the whole thing by listening to everything that I heard and trying to find out why sounds feel like they do and what's the secret behind it and what could I learn from that. And uh, just trying to, to figure out what kind of emotional structure could be supplying or contributing to driving this car. And then you try to replace that piece by piece with real sound things. I know maybe this sounds a little bit weird, but this is somehow the way I tried to do it. Can, can I ask a technical question? How is the sound coming out of the car? Are there speakers embedded in the body? Yeah, um, there are speakers in the bottom side of the car pointing downwards to the street and two little speakers uh, in front and in the back side of the car to make it um, sounding. It's, it's important to, to not to notice where the sound is coming from. It has to be, uh, the direction has to be the whole car. Well, I think this is great. Thank you for your time today, Rudolph. This has been fascinating. You're very, very welcome. There's nothing worse than stale cake. There's a lot worse than stale cake. Well, Bree here has a tip about cake. Have you seen the Coney 2012 video? That video is worse I than just, stale I cake. I couldn't get through the whole thing. It was too long. But, but anyway, back to Bree. When we're making cakes ahead of time, we'll bake the cake, we'll put it out on a cooling rack, and to keep the cake from getting stale, you put a piece of bread on top of the layers, or you can do a cupcake or a muffin or whatever the baked good is. 
And if you let it sit out at room temperature overnight, the bread gets rock hard and stale, but the cake stays fresh. And people come over and they ask me why I have bread on my cakes, but it's a great kitchen tip that works really well. My name is Jason, I live in Boston, Massachusetts, and I had a quick question. Other than carrying around a tube of hair gel everywhere, is there any good way to combat hat hair? Hey, Ian and Mike, this is Matt from Seattle, Washington. I had a quick question for you. I've gotten in the habit of wearing a hat recently, but every time that I take my hat off, my hair looks like it's turned into a big mushroom on top of my head. I was wondering if you had anyone that knows something about hat hair that could help me out with this problem. Thanks. Bye. So two messages on the how to do everything voicemail machine from guys needing help with hat hair. It's an epidemic. To answer Jason and Matt's question, uh, producer Blythe sat down with Judah Friedlander. You know him on 30 Rock. He's the guy that is always wearing a hilarious trucker cap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you prevent hat hair? Yeah, you're wearing an awesome hat, by the way, today. I've never seen one without words like that on you. The best way to prevent hat hair is to never take your hat off. You can't argue with that. I haven't had hat hair in six years. I'm cured of hat hair. You just go from one to another, very little time between hats. There's no time in between hats. I've worked out a system. It's kind of like, remember at the beginning of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when Indiana Jones was putting that sack of sand with the statue? It's kind of one of those kind of things, but with my hat. So, this hat does say something, by the way. Oh, it does? It has a lot of words on it, except they're in Braille. What does it say? World champion in Braille. I guess I, if I had felt it, maybe I would have. Yeah? No, I don't. Yeah, you have to I feel it. Really, yeah. You always got to feel it. So do you have any kind of how-tos that you'd like to share? Just kind of anything that comes to mind? I can't talk about math. I can't talk about spelling. Those are my only two weaknesses. So I have to talk about another area. Ping pong, backhand. Everyone plays ping pong. Hardly anyone really knows the game. And when you hit a backhand in ping pong, how do you how do you uh, hold the paddle? Do you hold it in front of you, or do you hold it off to the side? I generally sort of wing it off to the side. Incorrect. You want to be hitting the ball in the, from the middle of your body. Your hand should start about three inches away from your belly button, and then you hit forward and through the ball. It's a completely different stroke than the tennis stroke. I play competitive ping pong. What I speak is truth. Well, thank you very much, Judah. It was thank great you. To have you. It was great being here. You can find out more about Judah Friedlander and his stand-up tour at judahfriedlander.com. James Cameron is just back from his dive to the deepest part of the ocean. You probably heard about this. It's a part of the Mariana Trench called Challenger Deep. He's on the line now. We're going to ask him how he did it. Let's just start off by talking about how your submersible was different than, than everything that had tried to go deep before. Well, you know, when we, when we started uh, the design of the vehicle uh, seven years ago, we had to ask ourselves, you know, some fundamental questions about what we were trying to do. So the idea was if we're going to do science down there, we've got to be able to spend meaningful, productive bottom time. So we don't want to spend all our time in the water column. So we decided to to create a, a sub with a vertical sort of form factor so that it was, you know, hydrodynamically most efficient going up and down. And that's the, the, you know, kind of one of the breakthrough 
concepts, and it works very it worked very well to get to the uh, deepest spots on the on the planet and and be, have time to explore down there. So so what you're saying is basically like when when I think of a submarine, I think of like you know Red October, which is this torpedo looking yep. thing running parallel to the surface. Your submersible is running perpendicular to the surface. Correct. All right. And and then and then when it arrives at the bottom, it stays in that in that attitude and flies vertically around on the bottom, kind of like a seahorse, if you can imagine, as opposed to a longitudinal fish like a salmon or a yeah. trout. And it turns out to be quite efficient. It's actually quite fast on the bottom. It'll go about three knots, which is plenty for a research sub. Are you standing up when you're in no, this? No, no, I'm seated. I'm, I'm inside a small sphere. The vehicle is about 24 feet long, which means 24 feet tall when it's hanging vertically in the water column. And, and toward the bottom, there's a, a spherical pressure hull. And I'm inside that that pressure hull, uh, which resists the 16,000 psi of, of uh, pounds per square inch of of water pressure uh, at that depth. Hey, you must have had to do some kind of physical preparation for this because it it is a you know completely unusual human experience. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it was uh, you know I, I did a lot of running and some some yoga to kind of uh, you know be in good cardiovascular health because being cramped up you know for 10 or 12 hours inside such a small space, a 43-inch diameter sphere, uh, and I'm 6'2", you know, I didn't want to risk, uh, you know, deep vein thrombosis or some other, you know, thing like that. Was there ever was there ever a moment when you were in the sub and you're going down and you're like, oh, man, I should have done more yoga? <laughs> no, there was a moment where I said, oh, man, we should have made this thing two inches bigger inside. Yeah. <laughs> when you got down there, did you have a moment where you considered just how much water was on top of you? You know, I I learned a lesson from exploring Titanic was that you can get so task-focused and so much like an astronaut just reading off from a set of procedures that you can kind of forget to just be in the moment and just kind of be there emotionally and, and present. I literally wrote into my procedures, stop, look, think <laughs> <laughs> about where you are. I mean, I figured if I didn't write it down, I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that. What What did you see when you got to the bottom? Well, the first thing I saw was an absolutely uh, flat, I mean, literally featureless, pale beige surface of sediment that was so fine that I had to descend very, very slowly. I knew from diving the East Britain Trench uh, a few weeks earlier that the tiniest breath from the thrusters would would blow up the bottom sediment into a big curtain of, of uh, you know silt that would just hang there because there's very little current. So were there like were there like ferns like I imagine like you know when you have a, an aquarium and it has that kind of fake sea bottom there was no tires and stuff like that down there were there I didn't see one human artifact uh, on the on the entire dive it's a, it's an area of the ocean that uh, doesn't have a lot of uh, ship traffic there's not a lot of fishing activity there because the uh, there, it's uh, it's very thin on plankton up in the uh, in the upper water column that means there's very little uh, sort of energy for animals to subsist on down mm-hmm. there. And in fact, what you see at the bottom of the Mariana Trench is that the animals that do live there, the, the, those kind of albino amphipods, are quite small. And, and uh, of course, everything has to be pressure adapted to 16,000 PSI, so you're not seeing a lot of biodiversity down mm-hmm. there. I found it to be a quite barren and desolate place to the eye. Well, it's, it's interesting when I think about Avatar and how it's the most colorful world any of us have ever seen and how that is 
the complete opposite of the world you're describing at the bottom of the ocean. The deep ocean, yeah. I mean, I think Avatar, the, the, the palette for Avatar was inspired more by the shallow diving that, you know, that I've, that I've done, you know, since I was a teenager, you know, in, in coral reefs and kelp forests all, all over the world. And the, and the beauty and the, the biodiversity in those habitats is just stunning. Well, so as a director, would you go, would you, if you had the chance, would you go in there and kind of spice things up a little bit? <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think we have a collective fantasy, our kind of uh, collective id or subconscious uh, about what we expect. The deeper we go, the more phantasmagorical, the bigger and scarier the animal yeah. is out of how we imagine the ocean. It actually doesn't work that way. Uh, the giant squid is down maybe 1,500 feet, 2,000 feet, something like that, feeding down in the, in the deep scattering layer on, on smaller squid and that sort of thing. You get much below the deep scattering layer and it starts to thin out. And then it progressively gets less biodiverse and, and smaller animals as you go down. That's been my experience anyway. And somewhere around 9,000 meters, you get to pretty much the extreme limit for vertebrate life because you can't support uh, calcium structures below that. Um, so no calcium, no bones, no bones, no vertebrates, at least that we've seen. That's what science says. But, you know, I was kind of hoping, I was kind of hoping that we'd have enough time to explore around and, and uh, you know, prove them wrong. Yeah. I would love to have seen a pressure adapted fish. I didn't. But again, I was only down there for a few hours. Uh, well, hopefully this expedition, even though, you know, we didn't meet all our goals, uh, still will draw enough attention to the issue of this, you know, kind of vast, unexplored frontier. Because uh, I think people feel there aren't frontiers left, certainly not on this planet. In, well, the age of, in the age of Google Maps, where you can look at, you know, any place you want to see on the surface of the Earth, you know, via satellite in moments. Well, we'll let you go. Thank you so oh, much for your time. I could geek out on this stuff for hours. I, think <laughs> I believe you. Can <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, and uh, best of luck with uh, any future expeditions. Okay, all right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. That does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? Well, I, I learned uh, that you really turn your car on a lot more than you need to. The engine, is it, it's kind of unnecessary. As long as where you're going is downhill from where you are. So maybe the key then is if you're going to own a car, live on a hill. Live at the highest hill, where everything you need to go to is below you in the order you need to go to it. So, but then how do you get back up the hill when you're going to go you home? You don't. You just throw, throw your car into the ocean. I learned that in the Netherlands, all of their vehicles, they talk to you. Yeah. Domino's Pizza! The Dutch Domino scooter says exactly what it is carrying. It would be embarrassing if all cars in the Netherlands did that. Yeah. Yeah. Fat, unhappy man. Yeah. Boom. Arguing couple. Yeah. How to Do Everything is produced by Blaith Haga with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Kate Casey. And you know she's coming because you can hear it in her little scooter. Kate Casey. Pizza. It's weird. It also says pizza. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And check out our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Pizza. <laughs>